0: Welcome to the Work Revolution Podcast, where we believe, in fact, we know, there's a better way to work and live. And we are here to challenge the status quo of obsolete workplace
1: practices and ideas about leadership. I'm Lisa. And I'm Deborah. Along with you, our listeners, we're evolving our thinking about what it means to belong, innovate, and create change at work. Join us as we dispel the myths of meritocracy, hierarchy, and other bullshit practices that get in the way of all of us harnessing our full potential to make a better world. Welcome back to our listeners. I'm here with Lisa for part two of our three-part series on brain-based leadership, moving away from our conversation on stress and stress management, burnout, to focus more on resilience and humility for leaders. And to do this, we're welcoming back our guest, Michael Thompson of Change Innovators. So let's get right into the interview. And then Lisa and I will give you our, as usual, thoughtful and wise analysis. So we're back with Michael. Welcome back, Michael. Hey, glad to be here. So last time you and I spoke, we had a really interesting conversation and you laid it really nicely You know, why stress is a problem, what's going on in our body when we experience stress, and why that's helpful in certain situations, but really unhelpful in most modern day work situations and life situations that we find ourselves in. We talked about environmental conditions that our brain is scanning that can put us into that more stress response. So, moving forward, we want to think about okay, so what are we going to do about this? Now, I would say starting probably almost 10 years ago, but certainly in the last seven years, we've been there's been a lot of talk about change agility and resilience. And Angela Duckworth's book comes to mind, Grit. We started doing training in organizations related to these kinds of things in the past several years. So let's talk a little bit about those words and what they mean and how that's potentially helpful for people.
2: Yeah. So definition that I like to use or that comes from the heart math content that we teach is resilience is the capacity to prepare for, recover from, and adapt in the face of stress, challenge, or adversity. And there's no shortage of stress, challenges, or adversity in our environment. And the way that I approach the situation is to to connect leaders to what I call the relationship with their autonomic nervous system. So once I've helped bring some of this idea to lay it around stress and how stress influences the body and how we can measure the way that the heart reacts during stress is to encourage them to build coherence. So building coherence in the body and a definition of coherence would just be an optimal state in which the heart, mind, and emotions are aligned and in sync. In essence, it's a state of energetic coordination between our nervous system, our hormonal system, and like, for example, digestion and things like that. When we have stronger parasympathetic nervous system activity, so our autonomic nervous system has two branches. One is called the sympathetic system, which we call the gas pedal in our car. So when you're slamming on your brakes in your vehicle, right? And you're potentially going into fender bender, your sympathetic system kicks in right away, releasing that cortisol and releasing that adrenaline very quickly because your brain has identified a threat. And that transition between being in a restful state, enjoying the song on the radio and being comfortable to heightened stress and cortisol and adrenaline, it's like fractions of a second. So when someone's doing that transition, the cortisol is already being told to release before their foot even touches the break. That's how intelligent and fast these systems are. So the way in which we encourage parasympathetic nervous system functioning is by slowing down and slowing down the breath and making the breath more rhythmic. Turns out that when we get stressed out, we start to breathe in a more shallow context. And again, if we're not breathing fully, we're not oxygenating as well. And if we think about the fact that stress is going to help deplete the oxygen in our brain even faster, it becomes really important to connect with how you're feeling on a regular basis. So we can look at building more resilience by getting more attuned to how we're feeling and to encouraging ourselves to reset when we build this relaxation response. So parasympathetic nervous system, we also refer to it as the rest and digest system, So it turns out that, again, as mentioned in our first discussion, that when I'm stressed out and running away from a bear, right, my immune system functioning is not getting the resources it needs. And that's fine in that short burst where I'm fleeing for my life. But now we're in a state where we can be in a heightened state of of stress chronically almost all the time, especially with advances of media and technology and things like that. When a leader starts to build more coherence in the body, and we say coherence is measured from the heart as this idea that it becomes a sinusoidal pattern emerges in the way that your heart is speeding up and slowing down. And I can provide a video clip, Deborah, for your viewers, for them to take a look at what I'm referring to. So when we think about if I can be in a coherent state when we're experiencing challenges, when we're having stress or adversity... It could be as simple as we know we're behind on a project. We know that we have to meet together as a team today. Everyone's going to be coming in a little bit on edge or a little bit charged knowing that we're behind. And that ability to say, we're going to take two to five minutes here. And all we're going to do is get everyone to move to a more neutral or positive state. So we want to move your conscious attention onto something that's positive or has been a rewarding experience for you in your life. And we want you to slow down your breathing because it turns out that if we combine slowing down the breath and positive emotion, that it allows the heart to beat more coherently and to beat coherently much sooner. What's interesting about creating this rested state in the body is that you become much more sensitive to your stress reactions. You become much more aware of when you're in a less effective state. And this is what I meant earlier by the normalizing of this go-go-go, busy being busy, chronic stress sort of culture that we're developing. Is that if, once it's normalized, it's no longer as obvious to us that we're in a state where we're less effective. So when teams come together and decide that we don't want to just burst into this, right? Because the the rational thought process is if we're going to take two to five minutes to calm down and build coherence in the body, that that's two or five minutes that we're losing from being productive. And this is part of the shift that we're trying to create is to help people understand that if we can engage people in a way that is more meaningful and engages better brain activity, we don't need as much time in those meetings. Because if we're in a threatened state or we're fighting for resources or we're trying to defend why we're behind, for example... We're not going to be in a state where we're as receptive to listening to other individuals. And we might become more reliant on sort of protecting our image or ensuring that we're not being seen in a vulnerable way because we're really uncomfortable being in a vulnerable position, in particular when we're in a group of people. So when a leader says, we're going to just calm the energy down, we're going to focus on our breath, and we're going to do it for an extended period of time. It is uncomfortable, it is a little strange, but what we're really doing is giving everyone a fair opportunity to leave the day behind, to just come and center yourselves and increase some of this parasympathetic nervous system functioning. The benefit to it is that the brain and our executive functions increase. We have more activity in our prefrontal cortex when we're able to be in this resilient place or in this coherent state. And if we believe that stress is good, if we believe that we can just keep pushing to get to a result, it doesn't mean that we can't use stress and pushing people and communicating deadlines and things like that. It doesn't mean that we can't still get the result. It means that we're really going to create an environment where quality is going to take a hit. And that becomes a challenge because when we think about it from a manufacturing perspective, if we put out a product that isn't up to quality... The product is no longer profitable anymore because now we're having to service warranty. So little things. And people do not wake up and want to screw up. Like very, 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 very few people want to be the proverbial stick in the bicycle spokes. And so appreciating that people do want to show up and give their best effort but also understanding that their best effort and how they're going to do their best work may not necessarily be the way in which you would do it. Mm -hmm. And somewhere between that space between here's the policy, here's the way that we would engage in doing the work, and I'm really curious to make space to understand your interpretation and how you approach solving this issue, or what are some of the competing demands or hurdles that you might encounter given this direction? And then for that leader to make that space for it.
1: Yeah. And I would also add to that, it provides space and an ability for someone to potentially come into a meeting and say, wow, you know, I had a really bad night last night because my daughter broke her arm and I was spent half the night in the hospital or my elderly parent who has dementia fell. Because we also show up to work as whole human beings that have all of these other things going on in our lives that are... Also impacting our well being and our stress. And to be able to then feel comfortable in a work environment and not feel like that's going to be something that brings a lot of judgment or is going to be detrimental in some way, I think also just gives space for people to express what they're going through, but then also work through it in a way that's meaningful.
2: Well, I love that you bring that up because. So often, there isn't anything to do. Like So often, when people are struggling outside of work, sometimes they just want and need an opportunity to express that to someone else. Not because the other person needs to do something with that information, but sometimes it's just helpful to communicate where and what we're going through so that other people can have a more accurate understanding of what we're dealing with. Because if I do have a newborn at home, if I'm not sleeping expecting that I'm going to be on time or expecting that I'm not going to be tired or yawning or rubbing my eyes, that's not going to be a fair assumption. But if that conversation, if that acknowledgement, if that time isn't spent to understand, again, that subjective interpretation of the individual, then really what we're relying on is assumptions that people have the energy, that people can focus. And so this idea that we assume right? That we pay people for eight hours of work in a day, and therefore they should be able to fully do their job for eight hours in a day. Well, it turns out that's not the way our brain works. Our brain is very fussy. And it turns out that if we use a lot of our executive decision-making, if we do a lot of that creative or that decision-making process, that we're going to be tired because our prefrontal cortex is wanting more glucose and oxygen. So how we start to structure our day and how we choose to navigate interpersonal relationships and trying to be more effective starts to become relevant. Because just trying to understand where are people, and I want to be able to work with where people are at today, not where I need them or want them to be. If I'm in a place that's talking about people in terms of their past performance or what is expected of them or what we need from them, without taking that space to understand what's relevant and important to them, we're going to be missing the mark. And when we miss the mark, it's going to be up to the employee to take on that vulnerable moment to communicate that something's not right, or there's an error or a mistake, or there's a risk in moving forward. And so that's where it becomes a challenge, because now, not only are you feeling uncomfortable about a particular direction, because maybe you're lacking resources, or there's not enough talented individuals around, or even anyone. But you're now in a position where you have to share that to someone who may not have acknowledged it first. So it might be new information to them. They're often in a position of higher status than you are, and they have more autonomy over what we're doing. And so that becomes sort of a situation that for us, it's much easier to silently struggle than it is to become brave and vulnerable and communicate our needs. And again, that's going to relate right back to observable human behavior because there's going to be individuals who are much more comfortable to openly express how they're feeling or where they see a conflict compared to other people. This is where, from a leadership perspective, it can become challenging because if you're used to having, let's say, very communicative, proactive people on your team, you might start to assume that everyone should be engaging or have that skill set. But that may not necessarily be the skill set of your next employee who comes in, who still has lots of value to contribute, but the medium through which they're going to contribute that value is going to be slightly different. And that's where the, at least from my perspective, the need for leadership development and coaching starts to become very relevant. Mm -hmm.
1: Is there anything else on resilience, Michael? Because I want to, I also want to talk a little bit about the importance of humility, because that's another area where we've seen a lot of research. And actually, I've seen articles talking about how humble leaders are more important. Perhaps it's a more important quality even than confidence. So, But before we move to that, anything else that's relevant to say here on this piece of coherence and resilience?
2: Yeah. One of the interesting things about coherence is that it's a skill like anything else. So the ability to start developing it internally for yourself. And that can be as simple as setting a two-minute timer, getting good posture, drawing the breath fully into the diaphragm, and breathing out fully. And we also talk about putting your focus on your heart or chest area. It's heart focused breathing is what I'm describing. And again, that comes from the resilience advantage. But what's really nice about building coherence is that you can develop even more of it over time. And again, for me, the great attribute of building resilience is how much more sensitive and aware you become of your own stress levels. It is something that's measurable. So it is something where we used to talk about, oh, well-being and, oh, meditation or mindfulness. And those may have been abstract concepts for many people for several years. But now what we have is new technology and ways of displaying this and I love being able to do that. So I could just share with you how I like to do those kinds of demonstrations, but I'll, in a heart math module, will teach these components of resilience and coherence and optimal functioning in the autonomic nervous system. And then I'll bring someone to the front of the room. Now, for most people, even just being at the front of the room is pretty stressful, but what we'll do is we get this individual and we hook them up to a heart rate variability monitor. And so what's fascinating is that Every single person in the room can actually see how this individual's heart is beating. And I'll ask them to, without poking them too much, I'll say, could you walk me through a stressful morning? Like, could you walk me through a morning that just isn't fun for you? And what we do is we get an opportunity to see in real time how this individual and how their heart responds to the emotions. Because they start thinking about it, they start talking about it, and they start to feel a certain way. And so that becomes a pretty powerful demonstration because people learn, no matter how sort of rational or objective they are, they realize that this is a real phenomenon, that the heart can be in a place where we are more effective. In essence, the research would indicate that we have greater resources in our brain. We have greater activation in areas associated with decision-making, reaction times, social awareness, and the ability to regulate our own emotions. And so developing resiliency, developing coherence over time is not only going to prevent sort of the reactionary nature of human beings in conflict, but it's also going to provide a language for us to be more effective. And everyone is going to approach resiliency differently. Everyone is going to have a different understanding of what good stress or bad stress is for them. And as leaders, the ability to take interest in that, to say, where are you really confident where are you really comfortable? And when I'm asking a question like that, what I'm really doing is asking what kind of connections in your brain are becoming hardwired? What does not take a lot of your conscious effort or attention? So we're looking at a project, it's a 10 week project. What do you think is low hanging fruit for you? What do you think you're going to be able to excel on in a meaningful way? What do you think is going to take more of your energy? What's going to be a little bit novel or different about this? Because again, knowing what we know about the brain, if someone has to Leave a pattern or a framework for how they're doing something and do it even slightly differently. Again, their ability to predict, right? That certainty gets inhibited. And if someone's going to feel less certain about their job or less certain about their success on a task, that's going to evoke stress. As far as more on resiliency, it's the ability to, and I'll link this to humility, but when we honor that we're dealing with human beings, And that it is way more complicated being a human being today than it was a thousand years ago. We certainly have lots of benefits today, but it's much more complicated. And just as an example, like we're exposed to more stimuli in a week than our ancestors were in a lifetime. If you think about all the stuff on the radio, the media, the lights, all of it, there's so much information out there for us. And if we went back 500 years ago... If I had a family member who was 200 kilometers away and something bad happened to them, there would be a long period of time for me to learn about that. They'd have to write a letter, right? So now what we've done is we've now gone to instant access and not just instant access, but instant access globally. So not only are we connecting with what it's like to be a human being in this region with these issues, but now we can see it on a global scale, and i think that that is playing a role into how we're seeing our own selves and how we're relating ourselves to the world and some of the things that we want to have both from a like a highly advantageous perspective but also from a very negative and detrimental perspective and so i think it's never been easier for people to have this imbalance in the way that their autonomic nervous system is essentially being facilitated in their body it's very easy to be stressed out it's very easy to worry and have lots of details but where it becomes Much more amazing where it becomes like rocket fuel in the organization is that when we can take a coach approach, when we can really put the individual in that leadership role to say, I can't actually hold you accountable. The only person who can hold someone accountable is that individual. And Mm -hmm. so this ability that says, where are you looking and seeing great success? And what does that look like for you? And what are some of the things that come up for you that get in the way? And how could I be a support? How could I come in and put a support beam underneath you in those instances? And so
1: I think where you're going with this is that requires some humility on the part of the leader to be able to do that, as opposed to messaging, I'm in charge, do as you're
2: told. Or we went over this. I showed you already how to do this. Do we need to do it again? the brain does not develop a new connection overnight. It actually takes repetition. It takes practice. And that could take weeks. So going and saying, well, we're going to change a process. We're going to change how we're doing something. But we're also going to expect the same result. We're going to expect that they'll be effective. We'll expect that the solution will emerge or that they'll get to it. That's actually flawed thinking, unfortunately. Because until those networks are well-formed in that person's brain it's going to require more cognitive effort. And when we already think about the fact that our brain gets taxed, there's something you can take a look at. It's called prefrontal cortex fatigue, which is basically to say that when our brain has been used and active for a long period of time, we do use up a lot of oxygen. We do use up a lot of blood glucose. And so our ability to say, hey, I've been working really hard. I need to get some quality nutrition. I need to get some rest here. But unfortunately today, you think about the majority of people taking a break. What do you think they're doing when they take a break? Smoking. (laughs) We're getting on our devices. We're engaging. Yeah, engaging in other things. Yeah, yeah. So we're always on. Yeah. And it's not to say that that's a bad thing. It's just to say that it's imbalanced. And where it starts to really matter is when we're trying to fall asleep in stressful times. Because it turns out that human beings are different from the rest of the animal kingdom because of this highly evolved prefrontal cortex, we can move our conscious attention onto things that are stressful. I can actually think about that time in third grade when somebody pulled down my pants and everyone laughed at me, and I can feel a sense of embarrassment. Even though that was 30 years ago, doesn't mean that it's not something that can't influence me today. And that
1: is important also, I think, from the perspective of Having what we would call maybe triggers or small or capital T trauma, I might say. But when we're working with human beings, we also need a certain level of recognition that people come into the workplace with stuff. And so, what might be something that is a trigger for me, and therefore might make a task or learning something new maybe a little more challenging for me because of something from my past, for you, it might be different. Yeah, And a lot of people will say, though, Michael, but that's not the employer's problem.
2: Well, that becomes a beautifully packaged assumption, because the assumption is, is that we can just pay people a salary or an hourly wage, and therefore they will perform. That line of thinking was perfectly acceptable 100 years ago when there was only one or two employers in town and there weren't the safety nets for individuals, meaning we could treat our employees exactly how we want to treat them. We can dehumanize them. We can treat them as a number and they'll still have to perform and they'll still come into work tomorrow because guess what? This paycheck that they're getting gives them so much more. Whereas today, people are actually looking for a little bit more. It's not just a paycheck that encourages people to do good work or to contribute more or to be innovative, to provide recommendations or to continuously improve. So it's not to say that you can't have that belief to say, well, we pay you and that means this, this and this. It's just to say that that's going to be, again, my bias judgment here, that's going to be very lazy for those organizations to hold that as an assumption, to hold that as an expectation that because we do this, it means you should be able to perform. Every human being is different. Every human being has different experiences. Everyone has different levels of observable behavior, motivation, and emotional intelligence. So assuming other people will see it and respect it or appreciate it in the same way that you do is again going to be a barrier long before it's a catalyst to great performance. And some of the terminology I'll use is that we consciously and unconsciously impose values, gifts, and beliefs. So if I'm someone who's very detail-oriented, if I have a high attention to detail, if I'm consistent and organized in the way that I do my work, I am going to have a subtle unconscious expectation that others should be able to demonstrate this as well. And coming back to these trigger points or these challenges, that ability to own that, to be aware of it and communicate it as a leader and as an employee becomes really important. Mm -hmm. Because the way in which someone is going to respond to their stress might be vocal and loud or in your face, whereas someone might withdraw and get very quiet. And those approaches are going to need a different engagement strategy. Mm -hmm.
1: Is there anything else that's important to know about humility?
2: For me, the topic of humility is doing the legwork to appreciate that people are complicated, doing the legwork to understand and Mm -hmm. learn from your employees. One of the greatest things we can do in the workplace today is create an environment where people's brains can learn. When we're in a stressed out state, we're not learning the same way we would if we're in a, let's say, a coherent, relaxed state. When we're under stress, we do a lot of firefighting. It is the loudest alarm that's blaring that gets our attention. But that might not necessarily be the best thing for our conscious attention. I think another challenge that we have is that the brain wants to be productive. And what that means is that We will often, in particular when we're tired, we'll focus on what we can get done, what we know we can execute on. But what that sometimes means is that we're pushing the more difficult tasks, we're pushing the tasks that we don't have as much skill set on to, let's say, later in the project. And for anyone who's done a lot of project work, the first 80% seems to be really great. And that last 15 to 20% can feel like pulling teeth, it can really feel challenging. And so for the individuals engaged in the task to build a greater understanding to say, this is our interpretation. Our interpretation, or as the management team, or my interpretation is that this could take about a week. Our interpretation is that you might encounter these challenges. That's just what we're aware of right off the bat. But we don't want to assume that we know more about the task than you do. What are some of the unique challenges that you see? What might be a barrier that comes up for you? Do you feel confident? Do you feel supported to go in that direction? I will often talk about taking an interpersonal inventory. So how do you like to solve problems? How do you like to communicate? When you're struggling with a coworker, what are some of the ways in which you'd like that conflict to be resolved? When I'm acknowledging you, do you like to be acknowledged in front of a group of people? Or do you like that acknowledgement to be more one-on-one? Do you want that in an email? Do you want it to just be a face-to-face conversation? How do you like to learn things like this?
1: It's stuff that in a way seems so simple to just ask people and just to not make assumptions and judgments and just to go in with curiosity. And yet it's just not the way we're used to doing work. Leaders feel this, and maybe this is why we connect it to humility, is that it's based on the assumption that I have to be able to admit I don't have all the answers. I'm not the perfect person here. I'm not the person who... Even though there might be some perceived status difference, it doesn't mean I have, I know what's the best course of action or that I have all the right answers.
2: Well, and think about how that individual will feel over time as their leader monitors those assumptions, communicates those assumptions, and understands the subjective viewpoint of the employee. Because talk about an elevation of status. like Talk about feeling valued and being important. It's a great example of making space for that employee to communicate what they are certain on, what they are uncertain on, what they have good control over or what they don't feel they have good control over, or how they're feeling in relation to the other people on the team. Because if they have to work collaboratively with other individuals, but they don't have a good track record to trust that other individuals will work autonomously, again, as the leader, hearing that subjective viewpoint could be advantageous because maybe it's another coaching dialogue that we can have. Mm -hmm. It's an approach that we can take with everyone that will, and again, it is slower, not faster, but it can be a 10 to 1 return on our time, energy, and investment.
1: Mm -hmm. Well, That's a great place for us to wrap this part. So I want to say thank you very much for that. And Next time, we're going to talk about how do we capitalize on joy and happiness, which will be hopefully more uplifting for people. <laughs> Thanks, <laughs> yeah, Michael. I'm looking forward to that. Absolutely.
0: Well, Deborah, thank you for, again, another very useful, practical, scientific, pragmatic conversation with Michael. I'm, I'm really glad that we're doing this as a three-part series because clearly there is so much to dig into And I'm going to start by talking about something that really struck me, and I'd be curious to hear what your thoughts were on this when you were listening and having thought about it, is when Michael talks about the types of things that leaders can say and do in order to really kind of, as you have said before, manage the neurochemical environment. Because what struck me is that in order to be able to have the kinds of conversations and to create the kind of environment in which people can bring innovation and their ideas and their creativity and some vulnerability and a bit of bravery is you would need leaders who are really able to create that. And I guess the way you create it is how you verbalize all of these things. And I was particularly interested when he talked about leaders at the start of like a project that is, there's a bit of pressure, there's some urgency, basically saying to everybody, okay, like, Hang on to your hats. I'm going to take two to five minutes and we're just going to breathe together and get our nervous systems calmed down so we can really focus and create great work. We're expecting leaders to, I would suggest, have done a lot of their own work to get to that place. And I'm curious about what you think about that generally when you heard it, but also can we train leaders to do this? Can we teach them? Like, how do we start creating the kinds of environments that Michael's talking about so that people actually can? bring all of their great skills and talents to the workplace.
1: Well, I totally agree with you that it is leaders working on their own development. So I think the approach he's talking about taking is that leaders start with themselves and to making sure that they are in that, what he referred to as that state of coherence. And that the more you do it, the more you become very sensitive and aware of When you are in a state that's perhaps a little bit more stressed, because I really started to think about it, and I started to jot down some words, like when someone's feeling stressed out, like what kind of emotions are maybe connected to that and how emotions that maybe convey behavior too. I wrote down anger, agitated, impatient, snippy, abrupt, or maybe more of an avoidance behavior. And so I think it's easy for anyone to either remember a time when or to imagine what it's like when your boss is behaving that way, or you're perceiving agitation and anger or impatience from your boss and how that impacts you. And to Michael's point, that's going to send someone into, that's a threat. And so, yeah, I think it is incumbent on the leader to first master some of these skills for themselves. And he talked about using a coach approach So there is a lot of skill around questioning and not making assumptions. I think the biggest thing that I took away from it is how much we're making assumptions about other people. What he said, well, just the simple expectation that we're gonna, just because we're paying someone for eight hours a day, that they're gonna be able to work for eight hours a day and focus for eight hours a day and work and be very productive during that time is actually a huge assumption. It's an assumption about what's going on for them, how our brains are operating. And so- you're right. It's a lot of work on the leader's part. We're asking the leaders to really raise the bar, aren't we?
0: Yeah. And as you were describing that, the working eight hours, he talked about the neuroscience, but I was always really also really curious about the, like the neurophysiology of it, right? Like our brains need fuel to operate, right? Like we need mm-hmm. glucose. Our brains need rest to operate. Like our brains are not detached from our bodies, right? And I think often, particularly for knowledge workers or office workers, Our bodies, other than our hands on our keyboards or however else we create content in the types of roles that we're doing, or the relational work we do, like it actually can be quite exhausting. And some studies say that if you're doing work that's more creative, like you're pretty, you're good for about four to six hours a day. And to expect us to hew to the factory standard of the eight to ten hours, I don't think does any of us any favors. We're not. Adding the kinds of value that would be, that contribute to the vision and the mission of organizations that hire us. And I was also thinking, because of course you and I have so many anecdotes from the years of uh, the many, many years collectively that you and I have been in the workforce. And I was recalling as I was listening to him a very stressful situation. I was in my 30s. It was, I think, one of my full time, my first full time office jobs. I was working for a healthcare charity. And I was working in magazine production type of stuff. But of course you have deadlines, right? Things have to get to the printer. And we were on a deadline to get something done. And I was literally shaking with hunger. Like I think it was two in the afternoon. I hadn't had lunch. And I stopped to take a bite out of an apple so that I could get some fuel into my body. And my then boss came up to me and said, I'm not paying you to eat. I'm paying you to get some work done here. So first of all, was my neurochemical environment managed? No. Was my physical body managed? No. Did my stress levels go up? Yes. Was I going to be more prone to making mistakes? Absolutely. So those types of techniques of really putting pressure on people to get things done. I mean, yes, there are deadlines. I understand that. You understand that. People are working to the best of their abilities and often pushing themselves very hard. But when we start thinking about an employee is more than just a badge or on a lanyard around their neck, people actually are human beings and they have all kinds of chemical and electrical and neurophysical things going on in their bodies. I think the more that leaders know about this and understand it might actually help them get to the place where they know the things to do and
1: say in order to be a better boss in that regard. I'm always interested in, there's a little bit of cynicism Sometimes on the part of leaders that employees, like somehow there's this line, this clear line of like below the line, you're an employee and you are therefore behaving a certain way and you have certain motivations and above the line, you're a leader and therefore now your motivations and behaviors are somehow different. And I've always really struggled with that because something that Michael said during the conversation and your story just reminded me of it a little bit is most employees don't want to be, I think you used the term, the cog in the wheel or something. Because in my experience, I think most people are intrinsically motivated. They do want to do their best work. But at the same time, it takes a lot of courage and yes, a willingness to be vulnerable, to speak up to someone who's got higher status than you. And so to say to your boss, for example, I'm feeling pretty burnt out. I'm having some trouble meeting these deadlines. I've been working really hard this past couple of weeks and have really knocked a few things out of the park. I don't feel very appreciated. In fact, I feel like the one little mistake that was made during that time was the thing that was focused on more. So what I really like about what Michael's saying is really creating space that to not put people in that position Because I think there's more people who are feeling that way and are holding back and not sharing as much as they could and are not sharing what they're really feeling and going through because they don't want to be seen as whether it's weak or incapable or complaining and there's the status disconnect. I don't know what to call it. There's more people like that than there are people who are intentionally being a-holes at work.
0: The other thing that this brings up for me is this idea about vulnerability, being brave and vulnerable. And I can tell you from personal experience, and this is more than once, like it can be, it can cost you your job. You can say the career limiting comment. And so because we've tied our incomes to largely being silent about things that are could be ethically questionable or we don't agree with. Sometimes we just shut up and get the job done. And we do that not because we don't care, but it doesn't feel safe to be able to say these, whatever it is in the workplace. And I don't want to vilify any leaders here because leaders who know better do better. But if you don't know how to do the things that Michael is suggesting, it's very, very hard to create the kinds of environments in which
1: employees need to thrive. Exactly. And I think that's also why it's so important that really good leadership development really start at the top and work its way down because when leaders are really given this type of knowledge and these types of tools and strategies and the ability to practice these types of questions that he's asking in this coach approach, but they're not getting that from their boss and they're not seeing it modeled. It can create a real tension sometimes. And so I think that the more that And not to say there's not still value in having that learning, but the more this can be modeled from the top of an organization down, it's going to be empowering for everybody all the way through. And that's really where you get a really great organizational culture where the kinds of things that Michael's talking about just become the way that we do things around here.
0: Well, here's the challenge for many of us who are in mid-level, mid to senior, but not at the top level of leadership positions in our organizations, is at some point we have to make a decision about what we will and won't live with in terms of the work culture. Like, You can be a really great leader to the people below you and have a difficult relationship with the person you report to because they've Never had either the opportunity, they've never been asked to change. What got them to where they are was being more of a jerk or not to use the language you're using, not managing the neurochemical environment all that well. And so it can be difficult. I've spoken with senior leaders about this and they say the higher up you go in an organization, the less feedback you get about your behavior and your leadership style. And so it does take, and you touch on this with Michael as you go further into the conversation, it takes humility. It takes humility to say, yeah, I've been at this game for a while. And the more I'm learning about ways that maybe my leadership doesn't fit with the types of things that we're learning about the brain to really engage and to go on a learning journey to use that. And both you and Michael talked about at one point about creating environments where people can learn, right? Because when you're stressed, it's really hard to learn anything. And I think this, for me, part of it is good leaders show me that they still have stuff to learn. And it creates an opportunity for me to feel that my learning is not sort of something I have to do to get somewhere. And then all of a sudden, I'm this vessel filled with knowledge, and therefore I can go forth and be a leader. But that leadership is actually a practice. And I've often said this when I've done leadership development, you don't do yoga once and become like a yogi. Yeah it's a practice. You have to do it all the time. And leadership is the same way. You don't just learn to be a leader and that's it. It's not like riding a bicycle. Like, okay, now I know how to do it. I'll just keep doing it for the next 50 years. Hopefully nobody's been a bad leader for 50 years. Although I'm sure that's happened too, but that there is this willingness to be humble and to say, you know what, as you said, I don't have all the answers, but I'm curious and we're going to find
1: out together. That takes humility. Absolutely. And there's lots of evidence now mounting to suggest that humble leaders are in fact better leaders. And I've spent a good chunk of my career talking to people about their careers, advising them on their careers, hearing about their careers. And one thing I truly believe is that given the pace of change that we have right now, more broadly societal change, and then also technology change, if you don't have an environment where people can learn, and if you don't have your own mindset of being willing to learn, like you cannot have a career today where you will not have to learn. It's just, I think it's one of the most important things that a leader can do is to be open and receptive to their own learning and growth and development and be committed to that. And also creating the environment where that's something that is comfortable for people to do. And it's comfortable to experiment in a way too, because learning also means taking risks and trying things and being willing to have things not work out.
0: Yeah. And as I listened to the recording that you did with Michael, an article popped into one of my feeds by Cal Newport, and he writes about how our brains are not adapted, or we're not all that productive if we're managing our lives through email and like the the sort of the overload that we experience. And his piece in The New Yorker at the start of the year was really interesting to me because when you say to people, then the article is called, it's time to embrace slow productivity. We need fewer things to work on starting now. Some of the pushback that he describes, he says, there's one journal in which he quotes Uh, quote, your rivals are salivating over your four-day work week. Remember, there's always somebody willing to work harder than you. And this makes me think that for those of us who do want to slow down, have more manageable workloads to avoid burnout, leaders who want to make sure that their staff are psychologically healthy, that they're managing their mental health, could be perceived as slowing down the productivity of their companies. And so I think we also need some sort of narrative That yes, maybe it's slower, but the quality is there. There are less mistakes. There's more creativity. Problems are being solved in a more systemic, holistic way of getting to some better solutions. So this idea that more and piling on and pushing people's brains to the limit is somehow going to create solutions to the problems that we're facing in this world. And we both know that there are a lot of them. I think we need to really push the science on people to help them understand that this is not Lisa and Deborah saying, we need healthier workplaces so the people are happy. Well, yes, we do need healthier workplaces where people are happy, but it's because we're not doing anyone a
1: favor by the way that we think of work and how we treat workers. On this idea of pace and whether we slow down or, you know, does that make us less competitive? The one thing I would add to that is... That like, I don't consider myself a, a lazy person in the workplace. And there have been many times throughout my career, and there are many times moving, I'm sure, looking into the future of my career, where there are moments of whether it's a fire to be put out. I've been in lots of situations, especially when I was in account management where something's blowing up with a, a client and it's all hands on deck and extra is required having moments of that i'll speak from my own experience i excelled in those moments i was great at putting out fires i was great at being responsive quickly in the moment to clients and so doing that extra from time to time when it's needed we're not trying to say that we shouldn't ever expect that of people it's when it becomes a chronic day to day expectation where there, you you never feel like you're even on top of things and because he talked about this chronic state and that we're not even that aware of how stressed we're feeling and getting into that habit like I do have a meditation practice I've talked about that before michael's coming at it from a different angle when he talks about being in coherence because he's looking at it from really that purely scientific point of view and what is measurable as opposed to hey that's just all kumbaya and, and get into a drumming circle and meditate together, which sounds maybe a little flaky to some people. I kind of dig it, but okay. And I realize not everybody's there, (laughs) that's fine. So it allows us to really recognize when we're starting to to feel that stress coming in and to bring us back into a more calm state where you're just way more clear-headed and make better decisions. And you're also able to manage conflict a lot better. When
0: I think about the things that have stressed me at work, I actually thrive. I'm similar to you. I thrive on a deadline. I thrive on getting work, important work done that has some urgency to it and that solves a problem. So that kind of stress is very different from the stress of toxic environment, of boss who does the backhanded compliments and i know many people experience this like the more you get done the more is given to you like hey let's reward your great performance by larding up your workday and giving you even more things to work on so that's the interesting thing about stress at work is it's not necessarily the thing that you're hired to do your technical skills your talents your abilities your passions and interests it's often the work environment and the way that we're treated and When you said this, the assumptions that are made that we can basically just keep taking more and more and more. And I learned this from my brother many, many years ago, and this is a technique that I actually still use. I have either a giant whiteboard or a big flip chart. And when I add things that I need to do, I always make sure I take something off. And I would do this with my bosses in my 30s, they'd say, Lisa, Lisa, you know, they'd come running in as if the place is on fire and here's something we need to do. And I'm like, okay, I'm really happy to do it. I hear it's urgent. But before you leave, could we look at all my other deliverables and you can tell me what I can shift aside for the time? Because if I have to do what you've just asked me and everything else, it's not going to bring out the best in me and my work's not going to meet the standards that you have for me. So being able to find ways to help manage up for leaders who are firefighting most of the time, I think is a helpful skill to learn, but it's not always safe to do it because some bosses might say, I don't care what you've got on your plate. It Mm. happens, right? So the chronic stress I think is often really more in the relationships than it is in the work.
1: I totally agree with you on that because if the relationship was such, there was open dialogue about it and real consideration and compassion, those conversations wouldn't be so difficult. So- Next time with Michael, we're going to, I'm posing the question about happiness and thriving at work because ideally we want to move away from not just, you know, managing our stress, but being in a state where we can be more joyful. And so that's what we're going to focus our next conversation on. Thank you to our listeners. And just a quick reminder that we love to hear your feedback. And we also love to hear about challenges you're having in the workplace because Lisa and I like to talk about them. We'll use it as an example. We'll provide some suggestions and hopefully that helps everybody in their learning and in managing their career. So that's it for now. We'll look forward to next time. All right. Until next time, everyone. Thanks for listening. If you like what you're hearing, please subscribe and give us a review and follow the work revolution podcast on Instagram for more great content and updates about our work. In addition to two full episodes a month, we have a monthly
0: ask us anything where we answer your questions about leadership, career maneuvering, and whatever workplace challenges you're facing. Submit your questions to our website at workrevolutionpodcast.com, where you'll find all our episodes as well as learn
1: more about who we are. Thanks to Bernie at Blue Eye Music for our music theme, and to the team at Poditize for production support. Until next time.